Well, please open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 through 14. I do bring you greetings from Heritage Bible Church. It's so happy to be, so I'm so happy to be back here with you. Last year, it was my plan to be here on this annual occasion of our pulpit swap. Brad is over with our church, uh, but I got just bad sick midweek and uh, and could not be with you. So Abe, a pastor from our staff, showed up and recited First Peter from memory, I think. He had recently done that for our church, and we thought that was a good idea for you. I imagine you think just as well. well. I would describe Brad, my dear friend, as serious, sincere, and happy. And that's how I would describe you all this morning. I might have said funny, but that's just a little less of a spiritual word. But Brad is very, very funny. Well, I'm eager to open with you uh, the word of God now, Hebrews chapter 9, and to read what the Lord would have for us. I'll read and you follow along. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent that was prepared. This first section in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciences of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats, goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, Sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Closeness with God is the concern of the scriptures for you and for me. And you can hear it since the heartbeat of the Old Testament. And you can hear it in the Psalms. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read 
a few verses from these prayers of Israel to her God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you're my Lord and I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup and you hold my lot. I've set the Lord always before me. My heart is glad and my being rejoices for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 16. What a prayer. Well, the psalm just before it begins with this question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your holy hill? That's the whole question of the Bible. Who can get in with God? Who can get into where he is to be with him? Because where he is, there are pleasures forevermore. The whole Bible is concerned that you and I would be close with God. Even a psalm before. Or Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And the psalmist cries out from a sense that God is far and not near. And that is a distressing thought, that God would be far from us and not near from us. How long? Well, the Bible starts in Genesis 1 and 2. And what's going on there? But God has made creation as a habitat for humanity. And he set Adam and Eve in the garden and he fellowships with them and walks with them. And then sin enters the world and they hide. Adam and Eve hide. They cover themselves. And because of sin, they're sent out of the garden. And so in a real sense, we've been at a distance from God ever, ever since. So God has to close that distance or we're in big trouble. Well, what's keeping you from closeness with God? What's keeping you from closeness with God? Is it busyness, you might say? Is it you wish you knew your Bible better? Is it some form of suffering that has you confused and perplexed and maybe crying out, how long, O Lord? Is it a particular sin that's on your mind and and plaguing you? Well, there's an answer in this passage. It's mentioned twice. Look with me in verse 9. According to this arrangement, that old tent. That Old Testament tent system. Gifts and sacrifices are offered. Here's what they can't do. That cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now look at the end of the passage. Verse 14. By way of contrast. How much more will the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself. Purify our consciences. From dead works to serve the living God. This is what this passage is about, not the only thing, but it is about this matter of your conscience. And on the one hand, we have a conscience that is defiled and not purified and not perfected. And and down here at 14, we have a conscience that is a purified conscience. Apparently, this matter of the conscience and its purification stands between us And closeness with God. This book of Hebrews is concerned with closeness with God. Draw near with full assurance of faith. Your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, it says. And the big warning of the book of Hebrews is that you would not drift away from Christ. But that you would hold fast your confession. 
There it is. The whole Bible is concerned that you would be close with God. And what stands between us and closeness with God? Well, this matter of the conscience is brought to our attention in today's passage. Well, what is the conscience? Well, there's more to say. It's a human thing. Uh, Your birds and your pet animals and your pet lizards or whatever you got at home don't have a conscience. Um, Now, they may feel like they get in trouble with you sometimes. My dog did. Um, We found a new owner for that dog. It was hard. Um, We got more kids that walked on the face of one of the infants, and we realized the dog doesn't understand what's happening here. I grew up with a dog. It was sensitive to, to, to new babies and infants and things, and I thought this one would be not at all. Um, we got infants, and it started to compete and, and all the rest. The, the dog didn't have feelings. The dog uh, may get in trouble sometimes. Um, they're real creatures. They're not just robots, but they don't have a conscience. That's something that humans have. Humans have a conscience. That's part of what makes you special among all of God's creations. What exactly is it? We need to say more than that it's human. Well, it's your your inner box that tells you what's right and wrong. It's your sensitivity to right and wrong, good and evil. And this conscience that God has given to us, it's a gift. It's from him to us and it's for our good. It's to help us live in such a way that we may please the Lord and and do good one to another and flourish. But in sin and because of sin, our consciences are corrupted. There's no, there's no human with an, with an inner right and wrong box that when you check it, it's checking out perfectly. No, it can be corrupted in different ways. You can have a weak conscience that's giving off wrong signals. It's telling you you're sinning against God when you're not sinning against God. And then you'll take that box and you'll use it to tell other people they're sinning against God when they're not sinning against God. And so that's a broken, corrupted conscience. You could have a a seared conscience. A seared conscience would not be giving off signals when it's supposed to. And so there's there's a matter of sin or a, a wicked thought or something that you've done. And so many times now that you've seared it, you've seared it like burnt skin that has no feeling anymore. It no longer registers that something is... Evil. It no longer feels evil anymore. In fact, it feels right and good. And this is when we start calling evil good and good evil and turning the world upside down on itself. A seared conscience. What a dangerous thing. So this this conscience, this right and wrong box that we've got inside us. Oh, we should mind it. We should never sin against it, but we should ever be about training it to bring it in, in a line with the scriptures, and we shouldn't we shouldn't resist it just because it can be wrong, but we should be self-suspicious that it might sometimes be wrong, training it according to God's word. But what's it talking about here, this this defiled conscience or this conference that is not perfected or or the purified conscience here? Well, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 10. I just quoted this verse a few minutes ago, and it will help us. You might be familiar with this, starting in verse 19. This is where this whole section of Hebrews is going. Therefore, brothers, since we have, think about this closeness, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that's opened through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, 
Here's the command. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It's interesting, an evil conscience. I take it this is talking about the same thing here. Back to our passage in chapter 9. The great thing about Jesus is he purifies our conscience from dead dead works. And I pondered, what is he talking about with this evil conscience? Is it is an evil conscience uh, something that that accuses and condemns you of your own sin, so it provides no way to God. It it merely renders a verdict on the basis of your evil, or is it is it a conscience that's all off? So it's accusing you of things that it shouldn't, and it's excusing things that it shouldn't. And you look around a little bit in the commentaries, and you know one commentator says, "Oh well, it's this." And the next one says, "It's it's this." And I thought, I don't know, I. It doesn't seem obvious on the page. It would seem that it has to at least be this matter of condemnation on the basis of my evil for to have a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience allows me to draw near to God. I opened up Calvin and he, I felt good about him. He, he did it for me. The sprinkling of the heart from an evil conscience takes place, here's the word, either when we are, by obtaining pardon, deemed pure before God, or when the heart, cleansed from all corrupt affections, is not stimulated by the goads of the flesh. And then he says, I am disposed to include both of them, so I'm in good company. Good company. Now, the new covenant work of Jesus doesn't just take our sins away, but gives us a new heart that feels the right things, that is sensitive to God as he he is, that is ready to be trained by the word. He he fixes our, our conscience box, our right and wrong box, and sets it on the right course. And having forgiven our sins, now we can we can go to God freely. There's three problems our conscience registers. It's a, when you wake up in the morning before you come to church, maybe your mind is flooded with the sins of your past, the things that you've done and the places you've gone and the things that you've said. And maybe you're living inside the consequences of the sins that you've committed against somebody, a spouse that's left you, a kid that's run off, uh, a relationship that's broken, a job you no longer have. And maybe it's registering the sins of your present, the things that you're right now dealing with and struggling with. Then your conscience should register that there is a problem. Or maybe it's registering that a problem with our contact with the evil in the world. So Israelites would have to be cleansed with the ashes of a heifer. You heard that reference, which is interesting. So you'd kill this animal and they would burn it and mix it and save its ashes for you. And when you touched a dead body, you weren't allowed to go into God's presence and into the, the temple. So you'd have to be cleansed 
they'd mix the ashes of a heifer with water and then they'd put some on the altar and put some on you and you'd be cleansed from from your defilement having come in contact with a dead body. It's not that you are sinful having come in contact with a dead body. It's that God is life in himself. There's no death in God, from God, in his presence. That's a good thing. But what that means is that if we come in contact with death, and we had the period. And this, this whole system was set up to teach Israel that God is life in himself. We live in the realm of death under the curse of death. And isn't it a good thing that where God is, death is not? And one way that he taught them that is through these rituals whereby they could be cleansed from contact with death. Well, maybe your conscience is registering a problem because of fact that we live in a corrupt age and an evil age and we come in contact with so much sin and so much death even if it's not not our own charles spurgeon said upon our conscience there rests first of all a sense of past sin even if a man wishes to serve god yet until his conscience is purged he feels a dread and terror of god which prevent his doing so He has sinned and God is just and therefore he is ill at ease. God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his now he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. And the sinner knowing this asks, how can I serve this terrible God? He is alarmed when he thinks of the judge of all the earth, for it is before that judge that he will soon have to take his trial. And so all of these thoughts and bothers that read the conscience registers to us, past sin, present sin, contact the evil world, make it very difficult to serve God and worship God. It may keep you from wanting even to come on a Sunday morning at times or come honestly. How can we serve this terrible God, terrifying God against us as judge? So this matter of the conscience, this impure defiled conscience this is the big thing standing between you and closeness with god this morning i imagine that's why it gets so much attention here in in hebrews well what are we to do about it what is your answer what is your answer maybe you don't know that you're answering this question but consider what you're busy doing in your mind or with your time do you justify yourself Keep running little scripts, lists of things you do right and are good at that are a reason why you're holy enough to be right with God. Uh, Maybe you give yourself to others. You're involved in tutoring and you're involved in some nonprofit work and you're involved in volunteering at your church. And do you mention these things almost like a little list, like making sure that people know the things that you're doing? That may come from a desire to compensate for the wicked that you know is in your own heart. Do you medicate yourself? Are you tempted to drink? Entertain yourself? TV and scrolling and every other form of diversion and entertainment can be getting our mind off of our sins. Do you express yourself? That is to say, you say, Actually, there's nothing wrong with me. These problems that I find with me, they're not problems. They're actually right. And the world is telling you every day what's inside of you is exactly right. What's inside of you is good. Express what's inside of you. It's the true you. 
or you try to clean yourself up. It's going to church and doing rituals and keeping busy with external religious engagement. Well, that's what the temptation would have been for these people here. The book of Hebrews is written to a church full of people who know the gospel of Jesus, but the stakes are high, the costs are up, and they keep going up for identifying with Jesus. And some are tempted to find ways of being religious and even biblical, but apart from allegiance to this crucified and risen man that is giving them so much trouble. And so the Old Testament system, with all of its externalities, was temptation for them. They, they kind of liked the, the way of qualifying themselves religiously and feeling like a good person and getting close with God by checking things off and showing up and doing the right things. And he's saying that system was a copy and a shadow. It was leading to Jesus. He's the real thing. It is not the real thing. And no merely external system can save you. And he's arguing for that here. Our text is about this matter of the conscience. Our text gives us an answer to the question of how we can be close with God. So let's spend some time in it. The first part here, verses 1 through 10, is a little refresher on the Old Testament tent, how it worked, and why it didn't. How it worked and why it didn't. We have to imagine here, with the help of the page, the layout of this Old Testament tent. This tent was given to the children of Abraham, Israel, through Moses at Mount Sinai. He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt to himself. And now at the foot of that mountain, he would make them his worshiping people so they would serve and worship him. But remember how the mountain shook and there were flashes of fire and smoke and thick darkness and they had to keep their distance lest they die because God is glorious and they're sinful. Well, he was going to provide a way for them to get close, to be together. And it would come in the form of a tent that people would set up in the middle of their camp. And there were various regulations and plans for that tent. But if they did it all right, it would mean that a high priest could go all the way in once a year representing the people. And, and through that representative, the people and their God could be together. It's a pretty amazing thing that God would do that. How gracious is he to live among us, to set up camp in the neighborhood. God moving in. But that would mean that, that they had to go about certain uh, rituals and such. Well, let's think about this tent. The layout of the tent, its spaces, there were two sections. There was a, a most, there was a holy place, a first section. And then in the inner, inner section behind curtains, there was what's called the most holy place, translated holies of holies. It's superlative. It's, it's holy times infinity. It's infinity holy, if there's a such thing. The holy of holies, the most holy place. There's no other place this holy on the planet. This is where God is. And then consider its furnishings in your own home. You know, I probably walk into any of your homes and I could tell what happens in these different rooms. And I would walk in one room and I would see a fridge, dead giveaway. That's a kitchen. The food's in this room. This is where food gets made, food gets stored. It might be where food gets eaten. And you've got 
a bedroom. You've got some beds. It's a bedroom. You've got a family room, maybe some seating and a table, maybe a TV. It's the family room. An office, would have a desk and maybe a computer, some books. Well, you can discern what God is up to in the setting up of these rooms based on what he puts in them, the furnishings. So in the first section, you had a lampstand and you had a table with bread on it. That lamp had, in its more, more detailed description, had uh, ornaments and a look and a shape as if, as if it were a tree, a tree with lights. And there in this first section would be this reminder of the tree of life from the garden as we're getting closer to the presence of God. Here's a tree in the form of a lampstand holding lights, even lights that will be reminiscent of the, the luminaries in the sky. The heavens above captured and pictured in this small tent in miniature right here. A lampstand, it reflected the the life and the light of God for his people. In a world plagued by death in which our bodies die and we're under the curse of sin, that God would come to us with light and life. It's good news. Then you have this table with the bread of presence on it. What is that? Well, a table with bread on it. Well, that would tell me there's eating that happens here, eating together that happens here. Who eats a whole loaf of bread? The uh, the table represents with that bread fellowship with God, that God intends to eat with us, to be with us, to be close with us, and to fellowship with us. And the people you eat with around a table are as close as family. That's why we eat as a Christian church, uh, bread and a cup. It's a sign of fellowship and that we belong to each other. Well, that's why that table was there with the bread. That's the first section. Now, the intersection, it's got some other things. The very the second section, the most holy place, it's got an altar, golden altar of incense, where incense would be offered as if for the prayers for the people. You'd have an Ark of the Covenant. And you have manna from Lord's gracious provision through the wilderness wanderings. Gracious, as in he offered that to them. You have the raw Aaron's rod. You have the tablets. The word of the covenant. This was his word to his people. And you had a, the cherubim over the, the mercy seat. Think about that. The very inner place of the tent where man would meet with God is marked mercy. Praise God, that innermost part is marked mercy and not and not judgment for us. And the cherubim over it, what are they doing there? Well, remember, when we were booted from the garden, what guarded the way back? These cherubim with flaming swords. Well, here the curtain on the way into the most holy place is embroidered with cherubim. And on the inside, there's this mercy seat with cherubim over it. If anyone's getting in there, it's only of God. Because we aren't allowed back into God's presence. Here God's providing a way back. A way back into relationship with him. The layout of the space, the furnishings and how they're laid out. Now the layout of the calendar. 
In the first section, priests would go regularly and perform different offerings and give gifts to God for us. And then into the very middle section, the intersection, only one person, the high priest, would go and only one time a year. Now note here, verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And I chuckle because it kind of feels detailed to me. And yet, there are a lot more details. And so it's good he didn't go into all of them. But I take it here, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, that he needs to say that because we're kind of tempted to stay into the details. And we need to be reminded that there's a point to all the details. There's a point to the details. And if you can get the point of the details, that goes a long way to getting the Bible. That goes a long way to getting the Old Testament. And even all these obscure ancient instructions that that we're given here. Well, what is the point then? Well, already we've learned a few things about God, haven't we? We've learned that God intends to be close with us, that he is approachable and he desires for us to approach him. That's going to be a first thing. Uh, how about another thing that he's particular about how we should do that? It's his house. Maybe a third thing would be He's holy and we're sinful and that creates a problem for us getting together. Well, that's all sitting right there on the page when we look at that tent that God gave to Israel. But there's something that that old tent is teaching us indirectly, subtly, but clearly still. And you notice some of these comments that are made here. Oh, let's see. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates I take it here that the tent was never intended to get the job done of bringing us close to God in the way that God intended. It was purposefully deficient. There were built-in limitations that were making a point to the people of Israel and to us. It was... Deficient by design. There was a limited effectiveness. It was the repeated sacrifices that had to be offered. Even, even the, the Day of Atonement sacrifices, we read about them together in the service. Those had to be done once a year. Sure, once a year is better than regularly, but that's still regularly. That's once a year. Because sins kept accumulating and they weren't effective to take sin away. So it was limited in its effectiveness, limited in its access. Only one high priest could go all the way in once a year. And in discipling my kids, it was in the last year or two, I remember them, one of them saying, wouldn't it be great if God could, you know, like show up here like he did for them then? I'm like, ooh, good question. Because 
Here, only one really got to go in to be with God and once a year. That's not that's not really being close with God. <laughs> and that's the best the system, the best the system could do. In other words, since the first section is still standing, since you have separate sections, in other words, there's a section and a section. And priests can go into this one and represent you, but only one guy can go into the, as long as you even have sections, it's an indication that this is a stand-in for the present age. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. That is, that, that age before the Holy Spirit came and Christ came. In other words, the fact that there was a first section and that the whole thing wasn't collapsed into itself so that all God's people were with God all the time is, rep- is symbolic of the fact that it's a temporary age. Don't go back is what he's going to say to them. There's limited effectiveness, limited access, and limited cleansing. And this is really important. It was external cleansing. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the, here's the word, the body imposed until the time of reformation. It was limited in what it could do, how it could cleanse. And look at verse 14. Christ can purify us from our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We have an inner problem that that old system didn't deal with. So that's why in the previous chapter, he calls the old system a copy and a shadow. Well, a shadow can give you the outline of something, right? But it's not the thing. It's just a shadow. And a photocopy of something isn't the real thing. It kind of looks like it. It's not a real thing. It's just made after the real thing. And these Christians were tempted. You know, they worship a Christ they can't see. They may lose their job and family and may lose their life for his sake. Be shamed by their peers, rejected in their workplace, called stupid, called silly. They, they worship an invisible Christ who was rejected by Rome and crucified as a criminal shamefully and then they say he rose from the dead and that he's king of the universe. Well, this system, I mean, if we could just go back to this, let's make a tent and put our stuff inside it and have our system and our priests and and keep the calendar, and that's all a whole lot easier. What he's saying is, this whole thing was external and friends, external religion that is merely a matter of doing things and outward expression and checking boxes cannot save, it can't cleanse your conscience. You still wake up with the sins you committed in the past and the sins you're committing now and all the evil you're in contact with and you're not in a place to serve joyfully and freely the living God. Now, there's only one thing that can deal with this conscience plagued as they are with dead works and so we turn to that now. In verses 11 through 14, we see the path and the purpose of a purified conscience. And it's a surprising path and a surprising purpose. The path to a purified conscience is not justifying yourself or improving yourself or medicating yourself or entertaining yourself or expressing yourself. 
or even punishing yourself. It's blood, the blood of Christ. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent, oh good, a better tent, not made by hands, that is not of this creation. He's talking about the heavens themselves. He entered once for all into the holy places, not some place on earth inside a tent, the real presence of God, not by means of the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption and not this once a year thing. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh outwardly. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, and here's the payoff, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Blood does this. Jesus's blood, which is symbolic of his perfect life and also his sacrificial death. And his blood is better than that of animals. He's a man so he can represent you. He's divine. It's offered through the eternal spirit so God can receive it. And he's without blemish so it can actually work as a stand-in for us. Which is to say, when you go in prayer before God, when you join with God's people in worship, we do not come to God on the basis of having been really good this week so that he'd accept us. We come to God on the basis of the blood of Jesus who was perfectly good and whom God accepted and he accepts you because of Jesus. That's what this is saying. Now back to your inner right and wrong box that's registering all kinds of things. Sometimes it's got it right. Sometimes it's got it wrong. And when you do sin, it'll bother you and speak to you about that. It's a good thing. But in terms of how you come to God, we're not waiting until our little box is quiet because we're not sinning. That'll never happen until we're with Jesus and we're perfectly delivered from sin and its power. No, God has made a way for you to come to him, to be close with him, to worship and serve him through Jesus's blood so that you can have a purified conscience. So that whatever sins you've committed in the past and whatever you're involved in now and the book of Hebrews will address you to warn you lest you fall away. But we do sin now. We do wrestle with sin now. Nevertheless. The word of Christ is that you can come to God with a purified conscience, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, from your dead works, all the sins you've committed and all the good things you try to do for all the wrong reasons. You can come to God with the full assurance of faith and be accepted. That's the path. It's through an offering that is not earthly, but heavenly. Not once a year, but once for all and not for external things, but for your internal problem of guilt. And the purpose of all of this is not so that you can go on sinning happily with a clear conscience. Well, that's not the idea. Now, he's not worried about you not being changed because the new covenant work involves a new heart that is transformed and desires God and will confess sin. And that's what we did this morning. 
The clear conscience by Jesus' blood is not so that you can go on sinning with a clear conscience happily. It's not even just so that you can be free from guilty feelings. The feeling of burden and shame from guilt. Look what it's for. Verse 14. He offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works. And here it is. To serve the living God. To worship and serve the living God. Look, verse 1, he was concerned with worshipers. The first covenant had regulations for worship. Verse 9, the old system couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In verse 14, the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God's purpose for you is to be close with him. And the way that that's going to happen is through the blood of Jesus. He has provided a way for you to be close with him. Closer than the high priest in the inner place once a year. You today, all the time, full access, full access to God. I want to end with, with a reading from Pilgrim's Progress, which you may be familiar with, by John Bunyan in the stand-in for Satan, Apollyon, accused Christian. You may hear this voice yourself. You almost fainted when you first set out, when you were a new Christian, when you almost choked in the swamp of despond. You also attempted to get rid of your burden in the wrong way. Instead of patiently waiting for the prince to take it off, you sinfully slept and lost your scroll. You were almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk of your journey, of what you have heard and seen, you inwardly desire your own glory in all you do and say. Could you rightly be accused of some of those things? Are you tempted to justify yourself or, or do good to make up for them? Or punish yourself because you're so bad? Now, Christian responds, all this is true. And much more that you have failed to mention. But the prince whom I now serve and honor is merciful. And he is ready to forgive. Besides, these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country. For there I allowed them to come in. But I have groaned under them. Have been sorry for them. And have obtained pardon from my prince. And so, Christian, if you are have full pardon, having confessed your sins, you are now free to serve the living God.